Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carvel and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guest, our former ambassador to Egypt and international affairs expert, Frank Wisner, and long-serving congressman and financial regulation expert, Barney Frank. Remember, we love taking your questions, so write into politicswarroom at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. Now, we'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. And please check out the link to our sponsor, Lomi, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It really helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, James, a bunch of kind of big political news around on the Republican side, Ron DeSantis, who had been, I think, probably a co-favorite for the 24 presidential uh, nomination for Republicans. Uh, he embraced the Vladimir Putin wing of the GOP, opposing efforts to help Ukraine, which he said uh, is in a territorial dispute with Russia. Uh, yeah, and in 1939, uh, Hitler was in a territorial dispute with Poland. Uh, I think some Republicans nervously tried to distance themselves. Uh, Lindsey Graham said he has a total misunderstanding, and other senators said, I hope he learns more. What they're saying is that this guy is either a total pander, doesn't know what he believes, doesn't know anything about foreign policy, or he's just not ready for prime time. Well, I want to give you my suspicion. Okay. All right? It's a suspicion. There's money involved here, and a lot of money. Yeah. And if I had to look in one place, I would look to see the connection with the Koch brothers who do a bucket load of business in Russia. Right. Right. I, 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 it, it, it is my suspicion. I, I, I bet you our friend Jane Mayer is going to be on this, but I smell money and I smell a lot of money behind this decision. I really do. And it's, 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 it's appalling. It's sickening. It, it is if we don't have real vital interest in, in maintaining world order and not having ter- quote territorial wars unquote. I mean it it it, it you know DeSantis has got an Ivy League law degree. He was in in the Navy JAG. All right. He he you he has to know better than this. I, I think he was overcome with money, but that that's that's my strong, strong suspicion. Well I wouldn't uh you know, I certainly wouldn't rule that out. I think, you you know, you may be on to something. I think the other thing, or maybe a companion was, right. that he doesn't want to get, he doesn't want Trump to get an issue where they really are too far apart because he wants to, and Trump, of course, has always been pro-Putin uh, and is right. anti-Ukraine. That's That's, you know, if he wants to play that game, James, it's a losing game because, you know, Trump doesn't care about anything and DeSantis is going to find himself turned in nuts. Uh, if he's just trying to follow the Trump line. So I was reading that the Trump people are trying to just kind of an old charge I, I, that that he was easy on on child molesters. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the kind of game they're getting ready to play here. I, but, oh, my God. Yeah. Ron DeSantis, I don't know if Ron DeSantis knows Roger Stone, but he will. He'll, um, he'll get introduced to him right, very quickly. Right, uh, right. But but I, I just I, I I think this whole anti-Ukraine stuff I think I think it's treasonous. I don't think it's wrong. I I think right. it's treasonous. And and you know the United States is in effect at some level at war. 
I mean, we're, we're not have our soldiers pulling triggers or anything, but we we sure have vital interests there. We sure have aid. We sure have taken sides in this, and the thing, and we've taken the right side, one hundred percent. There's no alternative argument to this, and uh, well, we got problems with fentanyl. Okay, you know, well, we got problems with this. Okay, so. We, we had problems in World War II, but we were at war. And I think we're going to be here for a while, so strap in. Yeah. No, James, you're absolutely right. Um, on on the other side, I suppose it's the, the other side, there's a group called No Labels. It's run by Nancy Jacobson and I guess her husband, Mark Penn. And they say they plan to run an independent candidate for president in 2024, and they're already on three ballots. What's this all about, James? Uh, it's all about money. What else could it be about? First of all, it's not, they're not going to win. And the only thing they can do, and understand this, when you give them money, you should just give it to Trump. Yeah. And the only people that are going to follow them and, you know, anyway vote for them are going to be people that can't stand Donald Trump. And, you know, he said, well, you think Jill, Jill Stein got more votes in, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin than Trump won by, all right? And they're raising a lot of money, and they, and they go to people, and there's no labels. We need a, a new kind of politics. And it is a, a setup. It's a Trump trap, and intelligent people are walking into it. There's nothing but bad that can come out of this. I mean, real bad that comes out of this. And, well, they certainly have a dubious uh, past. They were the same group that that, that vehemently opposed Nancy Pelosi for speaker uh, five years ago. Imagine if they had been successful. Uh, I mean, that was uh, that was. And then they hired disgraced journalist Mark Halpern for an exorbitant salary. So when, but you know, Mark Penn was what he was. He was Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, wasn't he? He was. Uh... He was sort of posting a lead strategist. And again, I'm told very reliably that in December of 2007, he thought that California was going to take off. It's only the biggest state in, in, in the whole thing. And you just you really don't know the delegate rules, you know. But I, I don't think they care. I think they can make a lot of money off of this. And, and unfortunately, some, some well-meaning people are going to aid in a bet an effort to disgrace the United States and reelect Donald Trump. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Yeah. No, I fear you. You're right. James, before we get out of this, um, you have a dark horse or you have a pick rather even for uh, March madness. I, I, uh, a couple of things that, you know, you try to do a lot to bracket is futile, but who cares? Uh, I think a and might go, uh, I think they might get past Texas and go a little deeper. And mm-hmm. maybe UConn. Now, I think they're going to end up in a championship game, and that's problematic. But um, but they could end up in, either one could end up in the Elite Eight. Uh, uh, so that, that's kind of the go-to. I guess at the end of the day, Probably like Houston better. I don't know why. It's rated number one. The Final Four is going to be in Houston. I know it's, you know, but it's still there. You don't have to travel. 
but I I have I have no idea. But UConn and and a and M, I think, will go deeper than most prognosticators are giving them. But I saw saw a crapshoot after that. It is. If I had to pick my, you know, A and M or UConn, it might be Indiana. Uh, I think the Hoosiers yeah. are really they they got a terrific freshman and they got an All American forward. They got a good coach this year. They beat Purdue twice. Uh, you know, this hey, is Mike a, this Tackett, is, man. Oh, uh, right. I mean, you know, Mike Tackett. I mean, when you have Mike Tackett as your chief cheer, cheerleader, what more do you want? But uh, no, I think, and and I think on the top teams, I think finally, this may be the year of the Zags. We've been saying that for a long time. They never quite make it. They're not quite as talented as they've been in the past, but they're still pretty good. I think they're a two seed. So keep your eye on on, uh, Spokane and the Zags. Yeah, I, 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 that's the most humbling thing in the world is, is filling that bracket out. And I, did it for Harry Rhodes and Tony Cornhouse. He's the same one. And I don't have any doubt that the thing is going to get blown up quickly. Oh, yeah. You lose one game early. And, and that, that, you know, it's a domino effect. It affects every game then. Everybody says if you get a team that you think is going to outperform, take it because you'll rack up points. So if just yeah. say you got A&M. In, in UConn, or you got Indiana going further than is expected, you're going to win a lot along the way, and a lot of people are going to lose. But James, I, I've just come to my senses and realized the home front, and to keep peace at home, I want to say the Duke Blue Devils are coming on strong right now. So, so keep your eye on. They are, but they are. Everybody's uh, kind of written the ACC off, but look what North Carolina did last year. Yeah, yeah, were, yeah. Mediocre regular, but what a fall! I mean, what a fall they had this year. Four or five starters back from the national runner-up pre- preseason number one, and they're not even in the NIT. It really is, uh, and you know, there's an answer to that. People say, "How could that have happened?" Very simply, the twenty know. and twenty-one-year-old kids. Right. That's, a, that's how it happens. I, I, I don't miss Walter Dellinger every day. I miss him kind of every hour, and he know. What was behind the Carolina? He would. I promise you, he'd have the whole story. Is there know. any issue that we didn't turn to Walter Dellinger on? You could turn to him on obviously legal affairs, political affairs, basketball affairs, art. music, art, any sport. You know, you, he'd be the horrible football fan, baseball. Yeah. Uh, when, he, when, oh, a huge Nationals fan, right? Huh. Anyway. All right. Uh, remember, we I guess we picked we hedged our bets. We had Texas A&M, UConn, Houston, Gonzaga, Duke, and Indiana. So maybe we'll go over six. Let's see. Hey, you know, James, when I'm confused about a major geopolitical situation, that's not uncommon. Uh, I turn to the wisest man I know on these matters, my friend Frank Wisner, ambassador to four countries, including Egypt and India, top State Department official. Frank was actually acting secretary for about three hours and deeply knowledgeable about the Iranians. Frank, so I read the story three or four days ago about China brokering a deal with Saudi Arabia and Iran to restore diplomatic relations. And I think as Joe Biden would say, this is a big effing deal. And then I read 
the next day, well, it's not really a big deal. It's a start. We're not sure if it'll change much. So tell me, as you often do with such skill, what should I think about this? Well, I think it's an important deal. Um, it, it, it's a deal that remains to be fully worked out. But basically, Al, uh, I think the way of looking at this is ask ourselves a core question. Is the United States any worse off for China brokering a deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia? And the answer is just clearly not. We're better off. The Gulf has been an area of huge contention. We have military on land and at sea in the area. We've teetered on the edge of war for some time to come, sometime in the past. And to see the Iranians and the Saudis decide to at least begin to bury the hatchet is good news. It reduces the threat of war. And that's in all our interests. But I, I go on and say before we get overly carried away, this isn't the first time uh, we've seen Saudi Arabia and Iran over the past year. They've been meeting under Iraqi mediation and nobody paid any attention to it. Uh, the Chinese have now stepped in and with good reason. The Chinese have agency. They are communications with every party in the Middle East, with Iran, with Saudi Arabia, with Israel, with us, and many other states. Not, not true of us. We unfortunately cannot help between Iran and Saudi Arabia because we have no relationship with Iran and really haven't effectively since the JCPOA or even if you want to date it back a bit to 1979. But I think I'd underscore as well, Al and Jim, that this is still a fragile deal and much is going to be decided on how the Yemen matter plays out. That's really important to the Saudis and the Iranians really, really rein in the Houthis. I mean, can they, Frank? I mean, I mean, that's you're right. That's the most tangible possible short term benefit. That's the trickiest. You know, if I look around at people who've been wrong-footed in this or are potentially losers, I put my finger on Israel. I think the Israelis had hoped at some level to create a Saudi-Israeli-American front against Iran. And that's not going to happen. Um, nor do I think Saudi Arabia is rushing towards joining the Abraham Accords. So I think probably Al and Jim in a strategic sense, the really big news of this story is if we haven't noticed it in the past, China's time has come. China's going to be a serious diplomatic player on the world stage. It has the diplomats, it has the expertise, it has the traditions, it has the skill. And instead of sitting in the audience and watching others on the stage, the Chinese are now there. And we're gonna see a lot more of them. And it's what American statecraft has got to take into account. And that's a rather big mouthful. I hope I didn't say too much. No, you didn't. And you did say earlier that this was actually good for America. Much of the, you know, much of the analysis is, geez, I mean, Xi Jinping really pulled this off. I mean, he spent a lot of time on this over the past two years. And it's a real setback for America's influence in the region. You don't view it that way. I don't view it that way. I think our relationships 
with the Saudis are very important. They're fraught. Uh, but nor I'm given to understand that this didn't take us entirely by surprise. The Saudis kept us in the loop. And basically, it doesn't leave us worse off with less leverage on any front. Plus, we have overwhelming military superiority in the region. Uh, China isn't going to walk away with the Arab world. Uh, we are the most consequential external player and will continue to be for some time to come. But this is now shared space, and we need to get used to that. James Carville. It's still ambassador out we're a sufficient generation. When we were kids and we'd play pickup baseball game, we'd throw the bat back and forth and we, you know, and whoever got first would you choose sides. All right. It looks to me like the sides are now we're pretty much lined up. That's North America, Western Europe, East Asia, Australia, New Zealand, and then the, the more totalitarian China, Russia, Iran, uh, North Korea. And you, this producing uh, us helping Australia build a nuclear submarine, the Korean president, I think, is in Japan right now. I mean, the, our our team strikes it strikes me we got a better team going into this than they do. That that's what I'm, point I'm trying to make. Is that the point? Yeah, I'm I'm 100 with you. Uh, you've got to add Japan to uh, right. playing on our side. And then what about all of Europe? Right. Uh, it's not just the British, but we have a very solid lineup that Joe Biden's been quite effective in bringing the allies together and forging a consensus. It's a real signal to China. If you watch the Chinese, they're extremely nervous about the position, their position, which has slipped in Europe. So you put Europe, you put the U.S., you put India, you put Australia, you put Japan, South Korea, uh, and then with huge outreach on our part elsewhere in the world, I'd like to play on that side. I think we can win the World Series. Yeah, I, I, I agree. And uh, let, let's move to Ukraine for a second. And uh, Val and I will talk about this later, but I, I have to get your insight in. Is DeSantis is now said, well, we don't have a vital interest, say we should get out. Uh, do, do you view us as having a vital interest there? And if you do, uh, explain why we have a vital interest there. Al, uh, Al and Jim, I, I think we have a vital interest. I think the entire world order that emerged after 1945 has been put at risk when one large power can invade another power with impunity and impose its will, uh, destroy that power, overtake it. That's what we've been about for the past years, since 1945, trying to protect a world in which sovereignty is respected. And here come the Russians, and they have taken this core principle of global balance, torn it up and thrown it away. And we simply can't stand aside and expect there to be any modicum of stability in the world in which our trade, our political influence, our national fortunes can be effectively protected if they're dinosaurs moving around the global stage 
you know, trampling on everything underfoot, uh, stopping and signaling to the Russians that they've overstepped is really important. And now it's been important and it'll be important for years to come. We need to stand up to this kind of pressure. So before I turn it over to Al, and Al knows I'm, I'm obsessed with this point, we need to open a home front. We need a propaganda war here in Western Europe to explain what's going on, to tell stories, to flood the airways, to flood the op-eds, to flood social media and everything else. And if we don't do that, Putin is sitting in Moscow, said, these sons of bitches are soft and I'm just going to wait them out. And I, I'm, I'm afraid he might be right. That That's... That's my obsession. <laughs> well, you'll you'll have a resonance with me. Um, you know, the longer this war drags on, the harder it is to sustain sustain commitment in Western Europe and in this country. We're okay for the moment, uh, despite nonsense from people like uh, Donald Trump and and DeSantis. But we're okay for the moment. But I. This war isn't over, and we don't see a way out of it. Um, I think it's vitally important we stand our ground, but at the same time, make it clear to the world that we're looking for peace. We, on the side of the Ukrainians, want a peaceful outcome. And at some point, we'd welcome uh, a negotiation. You can't see a war come to an end on its own. Either would end with a negotiation or a stalemate, and a stalemate will just prolong the agony. Right. Albert, thank you, sir. Frank, you mentioned Israel uh, a moment ago. Uh, they must not be terribly happy in Tel Aviv today. Well, it, there are many Israels, and some Israels are really unhappy. Uh, <clears throat> demonstrations, the likes of which I've never seen, have been in front of the Knesset protesting Netanyahu's intent, attempts to uh, subvert the Constitution and defang their Supreme Court. Uh, that's one element of unhappiness. There's unhappiness on the West Bank uh, with this new government that's provoked a lot of violence among the Palestinians and lives are being lost. I think there's unhappiness as well with Israel's status among the Arabs. I noticed UAE has announced that it isn't going to go ahead with military understandings until Israel gets control of itself on the West Bank. And then there is a sharp debate, the most lively debate in my life in this country about our traditional support for Israel. So if I were sitting in the government offices in Tel Aviv, I would be worried. It's not a good yeah. season. Boy, it sure is not. Um, let me turn for a second. You have such great expertise on so many things, but nobody probably understands the Iranians better than Frank Wisner. You've dealt with them a great deal. We know when talking, going back to this Saudi uh, Iranian uh, diplomatic relations, we know that MBS basically calls the shots in Saudi Arabia, but there are different factions in Tehran. How do you think this plays internally? Well, I've, I've long held the view, Al, that if you try to second-guess somebody else's domestic politics, you're probably going to get it wrong. Yes. And you have to base strategy, national strategy and policy, on the government that's there and what the cards are that are on the table. Those are the ones you're forced to play with. You better play with them. 
I I agree there are factions, there always are inside of governments, agreements and disagreements. But basically, Iran today is in hardline hands. Uh, the Supreme Leader, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, uh, and the harder line political conservative faction, they're in the dominant seat since the uh, last election in Iran. They're calling the shots, but they are beleaguered. The economy is a mess. Uh, demonstrations in September on the streets over the way women have been treated and the murder of the murder of quite innocent uh, uh, protesters. They're in trouble uh, with their minorities in the country, particularly the Kurds and the Baluch. Uh, their Arab population, they've got a lot of things on their minds, not to mention the fact that they've overextended themselves with Russia. And I just can't imagine all Iranians think a tight arrangement with Putin is the best cause for Iranian national interests. That would fly in the face of history. Right. Right. One, one, one final quick before I go back to James to wrap this up. Um, did Xi Jinping show more skill uh, than many people suspected he had in this, or was it just uh, uh, not pro forma, but was this just uh, not 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 a great act of diplomacy? Well, let's go back a bit. You know, she has been receiving all Arab heads of state. The Saudis have been to Beijing. The she has been courting uh, the Arabs. Uh, he has huge economic interests in the Arab world. He's now taken a step forward to emphasize that China is seeking stability so that issues like its petroleum supplies can be assured and its markets can be assured as well. So I'm, I'm not surprised the Chinese are there. They've come out. They certainly have a skillful diplomatic service. They have a capacity to conduct analysis of foreign problems. But now they see a responsibility for maintaining some degree of stability in a very fraught region. I don't think that's bad for the United States. They're not going to displace us. But we still have to be extremely wary about the overreach of Chinese power. I don't see it in this case. I do see it in the South China Sea, in the threats to Japan, in the boycotts of Australia, in the maneuvers in the Himalayas. Those are all areas where China has overreached, and we have got to be extremely careful, and are. But here, I'm not as excited. In the end, as I said in the outset, I don't see where we lose with less tension in the Gulf, and if the Chinese got us here, so be it. James, you want to wrap this up? Uh, quickly, observation gets your reaction to it, Mr. Ambassador. In Tehran, you have these different power groups. As you know, we famously made the nuclear deal, uh, and there were good people were for it in Iran. A lot of people were against it. Then Trump pulls out, and the other guys are saying, "You see, you can't trust these sons of bitches. We don't need to deal with them anymore. We, they, they gave us their word. Now we don't have their word. At least we can. China might keep their word to us." 
did pulling out of that nuclear deal strengthen the hand of, I, I don't know, hardliners of, of whatever you want to call them? Was that a factor in this decision, do you think? Well, I'm not sure it's a factor in the Saudi-Iran decision, but it is definitely a factor in the alienation we have in the region. We can't deal with Iran. We can't exercise agency because we entered in good faith with the Iranians into the nuclear deal in 2015. And then Trump pulled us out of it with no justification, no violation on the Iranian part, shattering confidence, trust and confidence at the, are at the heart of international relations. If you don't trust the other party, you can't make deals and you can't live by those deals. And the single most dangerous issue, you're absolutely right, is this nuclear issue. We put our foot right in the midst of the nastiest problem of all, and it's now out there and it is not resolved, and it will trouble us until we can find a way to get our hands around it. Well, I thank you, sir. You have a well-deserved reputation for wisdom. Wisdom, wisdom. Thank you, sir. James Carville, thank you. Flattered. James, you can see why, why I said that whenever I want to find out what I think about anything uh, involving international relations, I call Frank Wisner. This has been a tutorial, particularly for us. Thank God we could share him with our audience. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Frank. Thank you both. We're about to start an interview with Barney Frank. There may be some audio problems, so please just stick with us. This past weekend saw the second and third largest bank failures in modern history. The Biden administration moved quickly to guarantee all deposits. Some were well over the $250,000 FDIC guarantee. Following the financial crisis of 15 years ago, Congress enacted the Dodd-Frank reform measure this was supposed to prevent um, uh, things like this. Nobody knows more about this issue than Barney Frank, who also is on the board of one of those failed banks. Uh, Barney, you have taken issue, a rare issue, with a usual ally, Elizabeth Warren, in which she blames the 2018 Dodd-Frank modifications, lifting the levels on which banks are systematically uh, important or too big to fail that that's what really caused the Silicon Valley bank failure. You you don't agree? No. Um, two things I, I want to say about it. First, uh, just to clear up the personal thing. I decided in 2012 that we had gone too low at $50 billion. That's the issue. And uh, in fact, in 2013, I made a speech at a conference that the Federal Reserve District of Chicago had saying that. The reason I, I say that is it is true that the Signature Bank, on which I later became a board member, benefited from that. But I made that public statement in 2013 at a time I'd never heard of Signature. And so I you know, tried to present those today, right. in, yet, yesterday, as if they were somehow connected. So, an independent judgment. Uh, the first thing I would say is this. The move of 50 billion to 250, which I thought was too high, I wanted to go to 150, it did not in any way diminish the regulators' powers. It diminished the reporting requirements for the banks, essentially. Uh, but the regulator had all the powers that they needed. I haven't seen anybody point to one of the causes of the failure of either Signature or Silicon Valley um, that was due to something they missed because of, of that change. I literally don't see the causal connection. 
I would note in this that the entity that took the lead in shutting down Signature, I think erroneously, was not any of the federal agencies, but the state of New York supervisor who's unaffected by the 2018 law. Right. In other words, the right. 2018 law had zero effect on the entity that decided that Signature needed to be shut down. So how could how could that be responsible? The the Silicon Valley. Back. The, the right wing already is trying to blame this on woke uh, and particularly the ESG, environmental, social and governance. When I look at that, that was, it seems to me that was a classically mismanaged bank. They, in fact, didn't have governance. They weren't woke enough if, if governance is woke. Uh, they, they, they made bad bets. Uh, and, uh, and when interest rates went up, it came back to haunt them. They were really arrogant. And, uh, you know, it was just bad management, wasn't it? I mean, they they really went and they bought. Uh, you know, they, they invested in long, long-term bonds. And, uh, you know, when the interest rates went up, they got, it came back to hit them. So people say things, you say, well, what is the connection? What, what did they do uh, that, that made them vulnerable? And the answer is no. Um, there is one problem, by the way, that was common to Signature and Silicon Valley that I hope we will fix going forward that the administration correctly, temporarily fixed. And that's the limit on deposits. In our case in particular, there was no operating The uh, New York Division of Financial Services didn't say we're insolvent. They said, well, we couldn't get the right data. If they waited a day, we wouldn't have had a problem with what they announced. But here's the problem we both had. We do a lot of real estate. In Silicon Valley does a lot of high tech. Our major depositors are businesses who need a lot of money on hand to make payroll and to operate. And the problem is the $250,000 limit means that the deposits of these major entities for whom we're performing meaning payroll, um, they're at risk. And so the, the slightest tremor and they have an incentive to go to JP Morgan Chase, et cetera. I hope the price now has responded by increasing the deposit guarantee limit to businesses in particular. We're not talking about some millionaire's pocket money, but somebody who's got payroll money. And in both cases, in the house, to make that permanent, again, for businesses, because it's not the business we're worried about, but the people who get paid by that business. We lost out for a lot of provisions. The administration has now once again redone that. So this is the second time that they have increased the deposit limit for businesses in case of a crisis. If the guarantee for deposits had been in effect, we wouldn't have had the slightest trouble. Okay. Uh, Barney, let's talk about Signature Bank, where you're on, on, the, uh, on the board. Again, you know the limits of my knowledge uh, about financial institutions. You know better than most uh, from all of our conversations over the years. But what you read is that a chief problem appeared to be heavy investments in problematic cryptocurrencies. Is that is that fair? Well, that's an example of the mistake. We were not involved in, we did not invest in crypto. We had zero exposure if crypto went down in value. That was more true of Silicon Valley than the confusion. What our leadership did with regard to crypto, I think was perfectly responsible. We did not have crypto deposits. Uh, we did not invest ourselves in crypto. What Signature did was to set up a platform 
so that two customers of Signature Bank, both of whom were customers of the bank, who wanted to pay each other, wanted to deal with each other in crypto, could do so. We offered a platform for two other entities that wanted to transact in crypto. Any risk of, of loss there was, was on their shoulders. Yeah. Um, uh, James Carvel. I, so, so our panelist asked you an easy question. That What should the Fed do at the next meeting? Oh, I don't think they should raise. I think, uh, um, one, you know, I go back now, James, to uh, the 90s when we were, as you noted, working in the bond market, uh, not happily. And at the time, there was this concept they called the NABU, which was the non-accelerating inflation rate of unemployment. The view was that if unemployment got too low, it would trigger inflation. And it turns out, and the economists now admit it, the number they were imposing on you and your administration back then was wrong. They were assuming that 5% unemployment was going to trigger inflation, and it didn't. Uh, employment, unemployment under Bill Clinton was down to 3.9. It hasn't been below four until very recently under Joe Biden. And um, they had to realign that. I think we're in a similar period right now. I think because if you look at what was the prevailing economic wisdom earlier, say a year ago, the unemployment rate we've seen down to about 3.6, that should have triggered much more inflation. Instead, we have a situation where but it's marginally eroding. Well, unemployment continues to stay low, and in fact, we've had much better job numbers than people expected. So I think, frankly, as it was in the 90s, it's time to re-examine the notion that uh, uh, unemployment that gets below four, that that's in inherently inflationary. So I think the Fed should hold off uh, and see if that good news is true. I think it is. So going back to Dodd-Frank and then the, the, the threshold of, of, of regulation, I, I just want to get clear that I heard you correctly, that the, the subsequent bill did not decrease the amount of regulation, what it did, what it pertained to reporting. Is that correct? It did not in any way diminish the regulators' powers. It did, it, the bill, and still in effect, the bank's over 250. It's still in effect, but J.P. Morgan Chase and Citicorp and Bank of America, et cetera. Um, it said that uh, they had to conduct more frequent stress tests and they had to prepare a living will, which is what you do you know, in preparation for being dissolved. But the, the actual powers to say to a bank, you've got to stop doing that. You've got to increase your capital. Uh, that, that hasn't changed. Um, they still have the ability to do it. Now, you, you could argue, well, but because they didn't have to report as much, things were going on in these banks at that level, at the 150, 200 level, that we didn't notice. But nobody showed me what that was. It is not the case that there was anything that was going on that people didn't see. And as I said, you had the New York regulator who didn't lose any power. But whatever they, and, and I will tell you, as a member of the board, I was a member of the board before and after 2018, I didn't see any diminution in, in, in the regulations. And so the question is, maybe they, there were things that they would have spotted if they had more frequent reporting. All right, one final quick question. Having guaranteed all uh, deposits 
at uh, Silicon Valley, no matter how large, isn't that impressive? Any bank failure, they're going to have to guarantee, you know, the federal government is going to have to guarantee uh, any any losses for any bank. No, here's what you should do. Uh, first of all, it should be only for businesses. We're not talking about some millionaires' pocket change. Um, we're talking about businesses, and there the, the interest is not protecting so much that entity as that payroll. Maxine Waters and, and Sherrod Brown were very much engaged in this to, to protect people's payrolls. Um, I think the rule should be that if a business, you don't set an absolute number for any for people different. A business can establish that it has a certain need in millions or tens of millions of dollars to maintain its payroll and operations for two months, that that should be guaranteed. Beyond that, they can make some other arrangements. But having, uh, as I said, telling high-tech people or real estate developers in our case that they, uh, they have to keep millions on hand to, to run their business, but it's at risk um, because it's not guaranteed, that sets the, the uh, basis for a run. That's what we have. So again, I think not in the interest of either the banks or the businesses themselves, but the, the local economies in which they operate, they should be given a guarantee to have enough cash on hand to, to keep going for two months. Barney Frank, uh, it, it's always instructive to talk to you. Uh, I've been doing this now for about 55 years. So uh, thank you very much. Enjoy yourself down there, and I hope I'll see you next time you get to Washington. Thank you, sir. I learned a lot. <laughs> Maybe that's because I didn't know very much, but I did learn a lot. <laughs> thank you, Barney. Thanks, guys. Okay, James, now for the outrage of the week. Mine is not an outrage, but it's a tribute to a remarkable woman. Pat Schroeder, a 24-year uh, Colorado Congresswoman, veteran of 24 years in the Congress at the end of the 20th century, passed away this week after a stroke. A member of the House, she had a marvelous presence, a sharp wit, and contagious charm. She refused to be passive at a time when women were usually relegated to the back bench. When asked for the umpteenth time how she could be a mother and a member of Congress, she famously replied that she had a uterus and a brain and used both. She left in 1996. I wish she could have stayed a decade longer to see Nancy Pelosi become the most effective and powerful speaker in the House. I loved covering Pat Schroeder. She was a treat and a pathfinder. Yeah, she was a... She was quite a remarkable person. She must have been pretty old. How, how old was she when she, she was? She was 82. 82? That's, a, that's a lot younger than it used to be, James. Is it? Well, we talked about what, what is the most outrageous thing, so I'm not going to use it, and that is Ron DeSantis being on the, being on the tape. I, I, I just want to point something out. It's not an outrage, but I read this site called Puck, and I think it's pretty good, whatever. And had an article about the evolution of AOC. As you know, you and I both have always kind of thought that she had a lot of talent, you right. know, by far the most in the squad. And it's about how she's evolving into wanting to be a player. And she's become less about social media and kind of more about policy. It was the, the general gist of the piece. 
And I, I think this kind of thing needs to be encouraged because uh, she's got too good, too big of a brain. And she's got too much talent. She's got the it factor. And I, I sure hope she continues to put that to use to be an effective legislator and leader and not first and foremost a, a presence on social media. But I, I, I think that uh, they did a good job on the article and I, I certainly she doesn't need ALC doesn't need my approval or disapproval, but I think she's moving in a smart direction. I give all the credit to her uh, communications chief, Lauren Hitt, who was a student of mine and is going to give the address at the Annenberg graduation uh, in uh, in May. So, uh, no, I, I think AOC uh, is, the, is, the, is a formidable figure. Now for these terrific listener questions. John in Sonoma, California. John, I think you're a repeat question. Thank goodness. Keep them coming. Uh, John prefers Joe Biden to step aside. But if he runs, how about as the jobs president? Taiwanese chip manufacturers just opened a 44,000 job factory in Arizona. Uh, this could be a pretty darn good issue for him. James? Yeah, well, first of all, just about just the mention of Sonoma makes me smile. I just love oh, that. Me too. World, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, look, <clears throat> Joe Biden has a record that is well over deserving to be reelected as of now. The question is, is, you know, the country ha- is going to consider whether it wants an 86-year-old president. And yeah. it's not going to go away. I certainly would vote for him. I, I, I certainly think that, if, you know, if you count the lowest unemployment rate since, I don't know, what, 1969, if you count record number of people on health insurance, you're talking about rebuilding an entire chip industry, which is cruel to everything else. You're talking about a really successful intervention in Ukraine. That's not that's not what's weighing on people's minds. All right. And, and sure, he's been a, he's been a great president, but. The age thing is not going away. I'm, I'm sorry. It's just not. You're right. You know, you're, you know, you're absolutely right. James, we have a bunch of questions, which I'm going to combine uh, on uh, Fox News. Uh, Barbara in Charlottesville said, uh, I was recently talking to a faith, uh, faithful Fox viewer, and they never heard of the Dominion lawsuit. You know, how are we going to get this frankly large amount of people who watch Fox to learn about it? Uh, and then we have, uh, I love this, Shane in Tonsberg, Norway. Did you get that, James? Norway. You're talking a beautiful country. Jeez. Oh, it really is. With wow. the Dominion case revealing the extent of the GOP Fox News relationship, can a case be made that they have been guilty of campaign contributions in kind? Well, the case can be made. It wouldn't be. It wouldn't succeed in a court of law, but uh, I think they certainly are. And uh, finally, uh, and I'm going to come back to, to – uh, so I guess it was uh, Barbara's uh, question to begin with. Finally, uh, I guess it's, it's Kim in San Jose. So much is coming light about Fox News knowingly lying to the public. How can Kaylee McEnany, working as the White House, who worked as the White House Director of Communications under Trump, paid by taxpayers, was allowed to stand at the White House podium and knowingly lie with complete impunity? Well, that's the Trump administration, Kim. Uh, Kaylee was hardly alone. And just going back to the first question from Barbara uh, about, um, you know, the Fox viewers didn't even know about this. Hallie Kurtz, their media reporter, said, you know, they, they're not letting me cover this. And he complained. So finally they said, you can cover it. 
I'm sure this was all done, uh, you know, straight. And Halley basically reported foxes. Foxes clean as a whistle here. They're innocent. So, well, there you go. Hey, you guys, it's it simply, it, it's hard for us to understand. I mean, us, you and I, the people that listen to this show, it, it, your mind can't get up here. They don't want the truth. The people that tune into Fox, the last thing that they want is the truth. Right. right? They, they, they all boss viewers because the guy predicts at nine o'clock Eastern or whatever it was that Biden was going to carry Arizona. Of course he did. They didn't want to hear that. Right. All right. And, and they don't care that Tucker gets out saying Trump's, you know, passionately hates him. It's all deranged, the whole election thing. And, and there you go again. They don't care. They want to be lied to. And if you don't lie to them, they will pay somebody else to lie to them. And I'm sorry, it's depressing. And I don't even think it's very controversial. That's just what they're, what they're looking for is just lying bullshit. And and the people that are giving it to them, of course, know it's clear that it's it's lying bullshit. And, you know, and now Tucker Carlson saying the only thing bigger than the saying that people in January 6th did anything wrong was the election of 2020 when he's got 40 texts, all right? Saying the same crap. Well, well, that you know that. Let's pick up on that because Ken in Oka, uh, you know those Wisconsin towns, they are so hard to pronounce. Oka no mowoke. Uh, o c o n o m o w o c. Ken, write us and tell us how I pronounce that because I'm sure I screwed it up. But he asked, has Tucker been able to create his own January sixth narrative? Do people, anybody, really buy that? Well. They- but before they want to be lied to. So he yeah. tells them that, that the government made all this up and these these pro-Trump people are, are totally innocent. They want to be, they, they want to be lied to, and of course he's doing just that. But th- that's what they pay for. Uh, you you gotta understand that. And just uh, on a get off a little rabbit track here, Wisconsin, we gotta get Ben Wickler on because my understanding is Wisconsin Supreme Court race is starting to tighten pretty good. Right. Uh, and I'm gonna ask Ben and I'll ask uh, Charlie Sykes, but I think Wisconsin has more difficult place names to pronounce than any other oh. state. <laughs> you know, the Absolutely. wild counties and the vowel counties and it, it, it they, they do have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of tongue twisters, but, but at any rate, the, you, you got. It's very hard for you to get out of your reality, truth, fact, bullshit narrative of the world. That's the last thing that that they are interested in. Perrin in Foster City, California. That's easy. Uh, wants the Democrats to do what it takes to win in twenty twenty four. So with that in mind, why haven't they tried to recall McCarthy using the tactics of the far right of the Republican Party force McCarthy to implement in exchange for their votes? I don't think they want to do that, James. Let Republicans do that. He's walking on eggshells every day. If they do uh, make a motion to vacate the chair, every Democrat's going to vote for it. Uh, in contrast to the right wing threatening Boehner, what, you know, eight or nine years ago, when privately Pelosi told Boehner, you know, we'll, we'll supply you the votes. Kevin McCarthy has no goodwill. And uh, anytime he makes a move that they don't like, the crazies, can move to vacate the chair. Let them stew in their own juices, Karen. So, so you've been on this, and, and correctly so, and I compliment you. 
they there's these stories now about McCarthy has to produce a budget and they're going to make the quote moderates unquote walk the line. And of course, they and you know this has been covering this for forty years. They're not going to touch, or they claim not going to touch Social Security, Medicare, and defense spending. <laughs> I want to see what that budget looks like. Oh, <laughs> I just want oh. to go. Just keep shoving them rope. Just, just keep shoving them rope. Have you ever seen blue smoke and mirrors? <laughs> it's not. It's going to be beyond that. All right. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's, it's, it's going to be beyond that. So, hey, to our friend in California and, and to everybody. The, I just do my knitting, and but I, I when I come back, I can't emphasize this enough. No labels is an existential threat to not only the United States but democracy and freedom around the world. Don't get sucked into that. Yep. Paul in Hancock, New Hampshire, is there any chance the DNC and Biden will reconsider their crazy plans to hold a South Carolina primary before New Hampshire? Our state constitution requires we hold the first primary, and we will, regardless of what the DNC does. As you know, no one or two media buys cover New Hampshire. That's why it's hand-to-hand, and that's what makes us unique. I, you know, you and I, we have our disagreements. This is not one of the disagreements that we have. Right. And, right. You know, it, and by the way, Marianne Williamson or whoever is running for, no matter who it is, all right, Tiger the cat is going to get 25%. I, I, I mean, they, they did this because they didn't want they want South Carolina, which they view would be more stable and New Hampshire's kind of quirky and independents can vote. And and this is people in New Hampshire. This is like having freaking Super Bowl. This is, and I, I don't know how it's going to end up. They might still end up going first, but they have pissed off a swing state with two Democratic senators and two Democratic Congress people to fix a problem that does not exist. Southern blacks have had all of the clout in picking Democratic presidential nominees, and they've had it since about 1992. Right? Well, they certainly picked, James, you're so right, they picked the last three Democratic nominees. They picked Barack Obama in 08, they picked Hillary Clinton in 2016, and they picked Joe Biden in 2020. They picked Bill Clinton in 92. Right. They have had far more influence than New Hampshire. Far uh, more. Uh, uh, much more. And, and we're just pissing off a, a, a state that Democrats do okay in, all right? But, you know, if, if, if Gore wins New Hampshire, we don't have the, near the mess we have in this country now. But I, he I, won I, the, he, He'd have won the presidency, I, right? I, I do not. I think we're needlessly, like, pissing off people in a, in a, in a, in a swing state. Yeah. Dot in New York City says if there are Republicans entering the field that are willing to criticize Trump, state on the record that Biden won the election to speak out against January 6th, can a Democrat encourage your conservative friends to support them? Sure you can. I don't think they're going to get very far in that party. But, you know, absolutely, uh, you know, you can. And, and uh, you, you know, even, even if uh, in, in New York and there's no Democratic contest, uh, and if you can, I don't know New York state law, but if you can, re-register short-term as a Republican and vote for him. I guess. I, I just think the whole Republican experiment is doomed and yeah. they're going to do. It, 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 and it, it doesn't even, it's, it, it's just now turned into just a frenzy. It doesn't even make any logical sense. It doesn't make any political sense. And, you know, racial resentment is Tom Edsel's 
has pointed out and cited the research. This is what drives these people. It's not economics and it's not anything else. And, you know, good luck. But the most productive thing you can do is support and donate to Democrats. And finally, Donna in Las Vegas asked, good, good question. Why are military members so Republican? Can you comment on this? And is there a way to influence more military members to become Democrats? I don't, you know, they traditionally been Republicans. And back in, when I was younger, the, the officer class was 90% Republican. All right. I, I, now it's, I'd be surprised if it's 45% Republican. Right. The troops are different. And most, a disproportionate number of people in the military, their parents were in the military. And it's traditionally been a conservative institution in the United States. But the military is having a hell of a problem with, with, with these these Trump people. And they have a, a, a real problem with, with political divisions in, in, in the barracks and on our ships and, and, and everywhere else. So yeah, it, there's a, a lot of complicated, well, some uncomplicated reasons and some a little bit more. But the, the higher echelon of military is significantly less Republican today than it was 20 years ago. I, I can yeah. talk. No, I, you know, I think that's right. right. All right. Keep those uh, letters coming in because we really, we love to read them and it's awful hard to pick out the six or seven best ones. So if you didn't get your question asked this week, send it in again next week. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics World Room with James Carville, and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicsworldroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Following this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsor, Lomi, in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them. When you do, you help make this podcast happen. To keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.